The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Happy summer solstice. Happy Litha. Happy Shadju and Tirgan and whatever other start of summer thing you may be celebrating. Later in the show, we'll hear from Western Mass's favorite weather enthusiast, Dave Hayes, the weather nut, about when summer began for him and for other weather nuts. And we'll examine the relationships we have with the people we love and follow, but don't exactly know what the word nerd. Emily Brewster points out the word parasocial, which Merriam-Webster, our resident dictionary in Springfield, is currently keeping its eye on. This Sunday at Bombix in Florence, Egg Tooth Productions presents Terry Janor and Angelica Sanchez's Secret to Life. Secret to Life features original compositions performed by an ensemble of women of color based on private stories or secrets of women older women of color, gathered through interviews conducted by Janor. Violinist and vocalist Terry Janor joins us in the studio along with Egg Tooth Productions founder and producer Linda McInerney. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Monty. Thank (laughs) Thank you, you. please. Thank you. (laughs) So where and when did these interviews happen? Okay, well, this is the first of a series. So this is really, this is the first... um, person that I've interviewed. The, each of the people I interview will be a series of three interviews that happen. I take that material, I digest it, and then I create work from that. So this is the first person and her story. And um, it, some of them, going forward, some of them will be with larger ensembles, but this one is with a pianist. So, yeah. Larger than a triptych, like several stories. Several stories, and my ensembles will vary. Each of the stories will be uh, be told by different ensembles, and the, they'll vary. Cool. Are they yeah. told with words? Are they told with music? Are they told with music and words? Yes. Is this metaphor? All, all of the above. <laughs> That's right, because I'm... Disciplinary. Yeah. So what I've done is I've uh, done all of these interviews, really studied the transcriptions, and then created my own words. So all of the lyrics you'll hear are lyrics I've designed for the pieces and that tell these stories that these women are telling me. This particular one person. I don't even know if she's going to be in the audience. I've invited her. She is um, anonymous, and she uh-huh. has uh, she has a, a name that she's chosen for herself, so I use that name in my lyrics. So she's not known, and um, each of these women will be anonymous. What, so can, that they what can, can you tell us about her story that, was, that drew you to it, that made you want to render it musically in all this multidisciplinary way? Uh, I think the fact that it was I was looking for stories that had not been disclosed publicly, and so I, I'm calling them secrets, but uh, she had there were maybe two or three different secrets that she had, and I was able to weave them into one story, and some of it had been told before, but some had not. So it was just really a fascinating process taking this material that I've used um, this three-part interview process before as a graduate student 
years and years ago, and I had been looking to use it in my creative process, and so this was an opportunity to do that, and I received support for it from a number of places, and I'm going forward. What are the three parts to your interview process? Oh, the first part is, uh, it's called phenomenological interviewing, and I studied with uh, Irving Seidman at UMass when I was a doctoral student. And the first part is looking at the person's background, their, their family, their community history, their background. The second part is finding out what uh, for me, in this instance, what that secret is or those secrets are, whatever it is the researcher is looking to find out. That's that second part. The third part is what meaning do you make of all of this? And so those three interviews happen at very separate times, weeks apart. <laughs> and so you give the person, the participant, the person you're interviewing time to really process and think. So that last interview is really quite fascinating once they've had time to think about what they've told me and uh, what they have divulged. What, yeah, so that last one is what, what does this mean for you, you know? And so I take all of that and I, um, I'm not looking necessarily <laughs> to, to give you what they think, but I'm looking to digest it and really make something of it for myself. Yeah. We're speaking with Terry Janor, who this Sunday will be performing at Bombix in Florence. Secret to Life is the name of this composition performed by an ensemble of women of color based on these, or at least just one, one. of these stories. Yep. Are the people that you have interviewed or will interview, are they local people? I know you've worked all over the globe on sort of different things, South Africa, Mexico, Israel, Colombia. Uh, you've had National Endowment for the Arts Grants and the New England Foundation for the Arts Grants. Uh, are these local folks whose stories we'll be uh, getting a little glimpse into their secrets of? This particular person is a local person, but I have now a few calls out to out out in the um, out in other communities other than our local community. So I'm not. It's not any. Uh, I'm not looking for a particular person, uh, their locale, but it is women of color. And this is this particular project has been funded by Creative Capital. And it's a um, and this performance coming up is part of a tour that's funded by Mass Cultural Council and uh, South Arts. So I, we have a few dates coming. We'll also be going into the, stu the recording studio, uh, Angelica and I, to, you know, put this down and, and get it out into the world. What was it about Angelica Sanchez and her piano playing that drew her, drew you to her work to be a part of this? I am an improviser in my spirit. That's what I love. I'm, I'm you know, I have training as a, in, in European classical music, but my love is spontaneous composing, and she is brilliant, and she has such skill and such heart, and she's just able to uh, move freely emotionally 
um, really freely. And I, she just has such depth and skill. I love her. I love working with her. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really great when you can work with somebody and they make your ideas come alive. Because, you know, you can have an idea, but then when you are in collaboration and you see it, it it's makes me better than I am. Yeah. It almost answers my second question where I was going to ask, like, what was it like just seeing somebody connect with the work that you had been working on and enliven it in that way, but you just answered that question. Well, you know, here's the thing, though, is that that's what we've done in the past. She hasn't seen any of this yet. Oh, really? No, she's coming up Saturday. We'll work all day. I've been working on the music. Mm -hmm. She's, we're going to get, we'll be in it all day Saturday and come alive on Sunday. Oh, cool. Yeah. So entirely fresh for her. Entirely. That's awesome. Yeah. We're speaking with Terry Janor, whose Secret to Life will be at Bombix in Florence this Sunday. How do these stories come to you? Or do you go out looking for them? Do you run into somebody on the street and you start to hear the story and you think, I've, I've been inspired by you and I would like to go deeper into this conversation? Or do people put them on your radar? I have so far interviewed two women. And the same thing happened both times. I said... Listen, I have just gotten major funding from Creative Capital Foundation in New York, and it's a five-year project, and uh, I'm looking for women of color who are willing to sit and talk to me about their secrets. And and, and in each of these instances, I'm talking to women who are leaders in the community, and immediately they said, well, I can think of a couple of people, but I might want to talk to you. And so I, yes, (laughs) and it's just worked out that way. I think, you know what, I think we all have something that we have not disclosed and that we'd like to tell. I I don't know. I think that's probably true of most people. I may be wrong about that, but I think there's probably something that we want to tell somebody. (laughs) In the future, when you go out to do these interviews, are you anticipating that they will not all be done in English? Oh, that's a good question. I have thought about um, I have thought about it, but I haven't prepared for it, but I think it's it, it is if that happens to be the case, I would definitely welcome it and prepare for it. Yeah. And visually, like this is a multidisciplinary work that you're presenting, will some of your visual art enter how it's presented at Bombix? Because you do visual art, you do all the things, but your visual art is really interesting, both your drawings and your your fabric art, um, or your tex- textile art, too. Is some of that going to influence how we end up seeing this piece at Bombix? It's not at, not at Bombex. So at Bombex, it's strictly concert. However, as part of the larger project that's being funded, uh, and I think there'll probably be about anywhere between six and eight women who I'll interview uh, and have full, full performances for, that entire thing will be put together, and that big, big, fat project will have visuals that I'll be 
um, you know, creating for. You do have five years to get it done. And I have five years to get it done. (laughs) No rush. And it's worth noting that you, Terry Janor, uh, self-taught doll sculptures that were featured at the Smithsonian Institute and that you were the director for three decades of the Augusta Savage Gallery at UMass Amherst. You're making my back hurt. <laughs> um, it's your CV. Oh, I feel That's what tired. happens when you have a CV that long. It gets hard to yeah. look around oh, all the time. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And, uh, you know, I always made time for my creative work when I was uh, at the gallery at the, un- at the university. And also I was teaching at Lesley University, too, concurrently while I was running the gallery. So I taught in their graduate program for 20 years while during that 30-year period that I was at the gallery. And I, you know, but I believe in fun and I believe in joy. And I always pursue those things that feel right, that feel right, that not not that somebody else thinks is right or I even that I think might be right. No, it has to feel right. And so that's the way I move always. Is this a piece that you were thinking of pursuing while you were doing a lot of that other work, like running the gallery? Has this been percolating for a while? In a way, the root of it has been. I'd say that for the past 10 years, 10, 12 years or so, I've been doing work that's autobiographical about my family things that have not been disclosed. There is there is a story about racial passing in my family uh, that was always kept quiet. I was asked to be quiet about it because in order to protect a family member. And so I was quiet. And until that family member came forward. And so since I then I made some work about it that Linda McInerney directed. It was called uh, there were two pieces. One was called The Pass, and the other one was called Pelala, and that was a solo work at the Shea Theater. Um, before that, I did a piece called My Bronx, and just talk, uh, you know, so I've been doing autobiographical work on stage, but so that's the root of it. And then I started wondering about other people's stories and what other people might have to disclose. Mm, yeah. We're speaking with Terry Janor, Secret to Life at Bombix this Sunday. And you were talking about the autobiographical turning of your secrets into this type of multidisciplinary art. And I'm sure that brings something to you personally to express it in that way. You've interviewed one person whose secret stories will be portrayed this Sunday. What do you hope, if they do come to this performance, they would receive from seeing and hearing their secret stories portrayed in this way? Well, you know, hearing you ask the question gets me a little emotional because I am always hoping that my work is healing. I hope it's healing for that person. It has been for me, and I don't even have a, I can't even tell you why or how, but I know that when I um, handle the work, when I handle those transcriptions and I'm working on it, I'm feeling it deeply and I'm wanting to honor that person. I'm not looking to uh, disgrace them, embarrass them, but I'm also not looking to make a fairy tale either or, or a or happy Pollyanna kind of story. I'm, I'm really looking to uh, give truth, but also have that person feel uh, glad that they shared it and and 
proud of themselves, I think. Yeah. There's something restorative about it. It yeah, really is. I and, think. and doing it in this artistic way, yeah. it brings it to a whole nother, almost spiritual level yeah. uh, of access and healing to these yes. stories that you could just tell out loud. But when you bring into this other dimension, when you when you portray it artistically That's like that, I think. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to ask a very basic question. <laughs> you play so many instruments. Why bring violin to for this particular voice? Why violin and piano? I don't play many instruments. <laughs> I, <laughs> I use my voice and I play the violin. The voice is an instrument. Okay. I'm going to well, argue. And, we, and, and I'm using it. I'm going to use it. <laughs> um, I think the reason I chose piano for it is because as a first... Um, as a first story being told, I was looking to hear the chords of it. I am a lover of songs that tell stories. I grew up with uh, listening to Buffy St. Marie and uh, Phil Oaks and Bob Dylan. Those were the loves that I had. And I played guitar as a younger person. See, there's a third instrument yeah. already. Okay, you You're got it. Yourself. Okay. I fibbed. <laughs> I haven't pulled it out in a million years. But anyway, yeah, so I always love that storytelling. And I think even through all the years of making more um, abstract musical work, I have this pull in me that wants to tell stories. I, I love that. So this is a, this is an opportunity for me to get back to those roots in a way. Terry Janor's Secret to Life will debut at Bombix this Sunday. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Great questions. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. <laughs> we can't wait to hear more of the stories as this project continues Thank to you. unfold. I'm so glad we're it's happened for so long. Yeah, we're sorry Thank Linda McInerney was literally choked up and couldn't be here in the studio because she would have been actually choked up by the conversation if she was able to stay in the studio. Coming up, the summer solstice as meteorology considers it with Dave Hayes, the weather nut. And next up, fandom arrives as we look into the word parasocial with the word nerd Emily Brewster. You're listening to the Fab. 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Coming up, Dave Hayes, the weather nut on the difference between the summer, which officially starts today, and his summer, which started a few weeks ago. We're going to talk about a, a words we're watching, because I know you like those. I sure Ooh. do. Emily Brewster is our resident wordster from the town of Greenfield, working at Merriam-Webster Dictionary in Springfield. And we've talked several times on this show about how words enter the dictionary. One thing that you do and that Merriam-Webster does, Emily Brewster, is keep an eye on words. Words that we're watching for potential future entry in the dictionary. And you've got an interesting word that you're watching now. I do, yes. And this is, of course, what we have to do, right? We have to pay attention to words as they're developing. Just because we become aware of a word doesn't mean we put it in our dictionary immediately. That's Urban Dictionary that does that. Um, <laughs> Which can be instead... very helpful at times, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, it is. Absolutely. I, I am not disparaging Urban Dictionary at all, even though most of the submissions incorrectly identify a part of speech. If you want to know a word's part of speech, don't go to Urban Dictionary. <laughs> you want to throw down with dictionary.com while we're at it? I think they do pretty well on their parts of speech. Okay. And, and I really do love Urban Dictionary. I think it's a, it's a fantastic collection of all, all really just vocabulary that really runs the gamut. Mm. Okay. I don't know if this one is in there, though. This word is parasocial. Are oh. either of you familiar with the word parasocial? No. 
Does that mean when you have to jump out of a plane strapped to another person like a and you're in a baby Bjorn? Or maybe it's people who like to hang out with ghosts. You're closer. I'm going to tell you okay. why we are seeing an increase in use of the word parasocial. It's not really a new word, um, but it is a word that is becoming newly prominent because of what we see being created and being narrated and um, being demonstrated by complete and utter strangers on social media. Tell us what Merriam-Webster's take on parasocial is. The para here at play is best understood, I think, as as the para meaning beside or alongside of. A parasocial relationship is a kind of one-sided relationship with someone you don't know personally. You especially have a parasocial relationship with someone who is a celebrity. Dolly, where I come from, would I have called you a hillbilly? If you had have, it would have been something very natural, but I would have probably kicked your shins or something. <laughs> or is a fictional character. Say, I won. I won. Or is a, a YouTuber that you watch a lot. Oh. The show where we talk about whatever we want because it's our show <laughs> but so also, you form an emotional connection with someone even though you have had no personal interactions with them at all uh-huh. gotcha the word parasocial usually modifies words like relationship so it is ghosts a, no, um. <laughs> kind of right except they're not dead usually although they could be the fact Ooh. is that you could actually develop a parasocial relationship with someone who was formerly alive yeah and by it feeling comes up an behind emotional you connection. and he starts making pottery with you it's so beautiful <laughs> okay. but now i'm thinking of it in, in a in a sort of real very like facebook slash instagrammy way like your friends who maybe have passed away but you're still friend you're still on their page and sometimes like somebody who now has control is just like we miss you and you get a post this literally happened to me <laughs> wow. oh yeah that's like, creepy when that happens and i'm like why am i getting a post from yeah. them oh my god it is ghosts these terms can get used so much they become kind of muddied at this mm-hmm. point this term still really is um is narrowly applied to the relationships that are explicitly one-sided and that are formed based on primarily observation. Mm-hmm. And you can have a parasocial relationship with someone you see in real life, but it, it has to still be one-sided. So, you know, that it, we can get into kind of like stalkery, creepy territory, or also it can just be someone who is, say, someone in some different part of the company that you work for and you admire them and you like kind of pay attention to what they're doing and you feel like, oh yeah, I see you know, these contributions that they make and you feel like you feel like you have an emotional connection to them, even though they don't really know you from Adam, right? They're, they don't know you. It is just you observing them and um, feeling a connection to them. So we're primarily looking at this through fandom right now. Yeah, it, and that is where it primarily occurs, is in fandom. Right. The term actually feels like it could be a new term, but it dates to 1956, Whoa. which is really during the rise of television. A sociologist and a social scientist wrote a paper in the journal Psychiatry, and the name of the article is Mass Communication and Parasocial Interaction. So the word was coined in that article, as far as we know. And they were observing the way that people were relating to those they encountered in radio and television and movies, the way that people seemed to feel like those performers or the characters that they portrayed were actually 
part of their peer group. I am sure in the history of your time on Radio Monty, you've had a lot of people develop parasocial relationships with you. Yes. They know about your family. They know what you think is funny. They know what you enjoy doing. They know like where you go on vacation. And so they they feel like you're, you know, you're like one step away from a family member. And I appreciate that. It's actually the highest compliment. That being said, sometimes people don't treat you like a peer. They treat you like an object. So you got to be kind to all the people. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, though, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield, why is this word on the rise right now? Did something in particular happen? Is it just that TV show? Is there a show (laughs) called Parasocial? No, it's not. Somebody made a show about the equivalent of a a really obsessive Beyonce fan who starts, like, killing people. I heard about this show. Yeah. She is not like everybody else. She knows what we're thinking and she gives it a name. She's a goddess. You're a killer bee. Part of the swarm. <laughs> Talk about Nisha. You get stung. It looks fascinating in no small part because in at least Western culture, more sasaeng stuff coming. More around. what? So there's a Korean term for this. Sasaeng. It's an obsessive fan. And there's a whole culture around the really obsessive fans as opposed to stalkers. And they're different. They're stalker-y, but for the most part, sasayangs, they can be, like, really intrusive, but they try not to be just, like, like giant fans. Please, <laughs> how do you spell that word? In I mean, in, in English, how do you spell it? S-A-S-A-E-N-G. Awesome. Thank you. Clearly, we, we need and we have this way to talk about the relationship that people have with influencers and with TikTok people they follow. And my son really loves to watch these Minecrafters, Hermitcraft. I only vaguely understand anything about the, the entity that is this thing. I don't even know if it really qualifies as an entity. But he, like, he knows the different Hermitcrafters and what they like to build and what they like to talk about and their senses of humor. So he has with some of them, with the ones he really likes a lot, he has a parasocial relationship with them. And I think that's true for a lot of us. The more online we are, we have relationships with people we, we will you know, maybe never see in, in real life. And they don't know that we exist. Emily Brewster, resident worcester from Merriam-Webster, do you have a parasocial relationship with anybody online? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think so. But, you know, fictional characters count. Like who? Think. No, I don't think I do. <laughs> do you? What about you, Khalees? Like, you know so much about them, but they have no idea who you are, and maybe you've never even met them. Oh. You just feel an emotional connection. Yeah. That's all it takes. Uh, it's just... I think it's a pile of chefs, for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> Not to harp on a theme of, like, the past couple of days. Wait, maybe there's a songwriter or a, a writer out there, right? If that if that if something happened to this writer, I would feel kind of, I would feel devastated. Oh, yeah. That's, no, there's like, so there's they, a handful like, of those, yeah, for sure. And yeah, plus, like, I, with, like, people dying this year, where I was like, oh, that's upsetting. Yeah, we were both upset when we found out like a minute before we went on that Tina Turner died. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean maybe maybe that that veers in the direction of parasocial, right? Feeling an emotional connection. I'm sure there are different gradations of the parasocial relationship. It is definitely not always seen as a bad or good thing. The word para here is not the para that means abnormal. This is not a social ill. None of the documentation about the word suggests that. Yeah, okay. Well, in that case, Snail Lords, who is a a manga artist or a webcomic artist, and John Kong and the Black Forager. Now you know how to make weird pickles. How is now? Don't die. I love her so much. (laughs) She's just a ray of sunshine. She may have had more than a little to do with the fact that I just planted two serviceberry trees in my yard. Oh. 
See, you took an emotional relationship that was contrived via social media and turned it into a real life thing. And that's a good thing. Well, also, all of those things benefit everybody. Yeah. You can eat the yeah. berries if you get to them before the birds and it's good. They're native and we need more trees. Something that increases social interaction and social connectedness. Yeah. I mean, we're only, we're only here to talk about the word, of course. <laughs> but um, it seems to me like that's, that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And the word is parasocial. It reminds me of, and especially when we were talking about the differences between different types of fandom where it can get out of hand and also then the the healthy kind of way of of fandom, the word stan, which is that word now in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. This is a word that came up because of a song that Eminem wrote about an obsessed fan. Anyways, I hope you get this, man. Hit me back. Just a chat. Truly yours. Your biggest fan. This is Stan. We've largely looked at this word positively. If you listen to the song, well, the Stan in the song yeah, I is... I never understood why. He's bad news. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he is bad news. It can be used positively, but our, our, we actually have labels at both the noun and the verb that say it's often disparaging. Oh, okay. Like, you know, you don't really want to be called a Stan. But you could say I Stan the beachcomber in Wellfleet, where I was on Friday. Totally. Totally true. And that, that would be a positive thing in most people's mind, right? Yeah. No, you know, self-identifying is totally fine. Tell us what, how Merriam-Webster defines Stan, this word that came from an Eminem song, and Dido. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we define there. the noun as an extremely or excessively enthusiastic and devoted fan. And then we have the verb Stan, to exhibit fandom to an extreme or excessive degree, to be an extremely devoted and enthusiastic fan of someone or something. And so that one has already made it into the dictionary. So parasocial yeah. is potentially on the way. Yeah, I mean, it's one that we are we are definitely, definitely watching. So do you have a working definition for parasocial? Um, Even though it's not, not officially Not one that I'm in? willing to share. Oh, yeah, we have to uh, wait till the big reveal. Right. Yeah, yes. you gotta wait. You gotta wait. <laughs> yeah. But here a key is about it. It's one-sided with someone you don't know personally and that it's, you know, it's based on or, or it's formed with an emotional connection. What are some other words using para as a as a prefix in the way that parasocial is using it? Mathematically, parallel, right, means alongside of. Right. So parasocial here would be being used in a kind of metaphorical way, but the same basic application. Mm-hmm. That's where my brain went. My brain went to parallelogram. And I was like, lelogram is not a word. It's not. Neither is lel. And parallel is where my <laughs> mind went. But then it went to like paraprofessional, which is like a professional in the classroom that's working alongside right. either the kids and the other teachers and stuff like that. So that might be kind of a, a close relationship linguistically. I think that's you know, closer. Parable. Parable comes from a Greek word that means juxtaposition, comparison, I guess, because, you know, a parable helps you compare a story to real life. Comparable. I'm today years old when I made that connection. (laughs) Comparable is the parables that have been told. Here's a parable. Comparable parable. With parable. (laughs) Now we've said that word so much that it doesn't make any sense. Comparable. That's how a word gets out of the dictionary when you've just said it that many times. You're like, that's not even a real word, is it? Uh, I'm going to fight to make my next pet named Parable. (laughs) We'll see how that flies. Yeah. And then there's parasite, of course. Yeah. Less positive. Less positive, less positive. But this word, I mean, this word is a fun word to talk about. There are really two basic kinds of parasites. One you want medical treatment for, and the other, you need to establish good social boundaries. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a parasite is also, you know, someone who is dependent on and exploiting you, living off of you or whatever, and you don't get anything in return. Do you know which one's older? I'm going to go with the person one, not the actual, like, little critter that you need to get some medication for. Yes. Weird. I think that's so fascinating. Me too. That, that the social cool. parasite, that's the word's earlier use. How early are we talking? Uh, 
uh, like, uh, you know, 1530s. Whoa. And then the organism is like the 1720s. Once they, dis- once they started figuring out that it was an actual organism and not just your four humors being mad at you. <laughs> yeah, or witches. Right. Or witches. <laughs> oh, witches! Exactly. Or yes. both. <laughs> Why choose? You can be parasocial without being parasite or, or parasitic. parasitic. And... <laughs> They're both older than you might think as words, especially parasite and used in that way. There may be certain parallels between them. Yes, there might, Calice. <laughs> We're a para. I don't know what's making dad jokes like that. <laughs> We're a parallelogram. <laughs> <laughs> when will the Merriam-Webster Dictionary announce this year's new batch of words? Because now it used to be in conjunction with the printing, but now it can basically be whenever you want. We're not yet releasing a, a date, but I will let you know when I have a date. Excellent. For you, sure. You heard it here pre-first. Coming up, Dave Hayes, the weather nut, telling us what the weather will be like for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at Tanglewood tomorrow and the Green River Festival this weekend. And on why it's so flippin' chilly, even though it's officially summer now. Climate change. You're waiting, listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Dave Hayes, the weather nut, has lived in the valley for over three decades, but has been a climatological connoisseur since he was 12. With over 53,000 followers on Facebook, people of the 413 rely on his even-tempered armchair meteorology. And today is the first day of summer. Yep. But not for meteorologists. Is this true, Dave Hayes, the weather nut? It is the first day of astronomical summer. Which means, like, if you're a Pisces, that uh, you get your horoscope read? You're oh, no, a sorry. Pisces. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's Pisces astrological summer, not summer, astronomical I mean, summer. Right, right, right. That's it's, your bonus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I will read to you what the National Weather Service says astronomical summer is. The summer solstice occurs at the moment the Earth's tilt toward the sun is at a maximum. Therefore... On the day of the summer solstice, the sun appears at its highest elevation with a noontime position that changes very little for several days before and after the summer solstice. In fact, the word solstice comes from the Latin solstitium, or sol, sun, stit, standing. The summer solstice occurs when the sun uh-huh. is directly over the Tropic of Cancer, which is the name of my now shuttered tanning salon. Dave Hayes, <laughs> the weather nut. Tell me what <laughs> meteorological. <laughs> tell me what meteorological summer means to somebody who weather forecasts, and when that begins. I don't know, Monty. I mean, there's still time to reopen that uh, tropic of uh, <laughs> I, cancer. I think I'm going to um, open it right next to the beach coma where I texted yes! you from. Dave Hayes is from right. Eastern Mass. We both have Boston accents. We both love exactly. the beach coma. I stand the beach coma. I like comas. that you say that like I'm not from Roxbury. I know, Khalees. I'm explaining it not to you, <laughs> but to the listener. I know you know this. I went there no, pre-summer. because I was omitted. Uh, no, you were not omitted, but you've never been to the beach coma, but that's fine. Um, you, when did your summer start as somebody who forecasts the weather, Dave Hayes? Well, I mean, as far as... Um, meteorological summers concerned or meteorological seasons. I was doing a little research because I've always thought of it in terms of like when the gen- those general types of weather conditions set up. But as it turns out, it's it kind of breaks um, for meteorologists and climatologists. Meteorological summer, meteorological winter breaks things down into even months, three months at a time. Mm. So meteorological summer 
starts on June 1, uh, meteorological autumn starts on September 1, meteorological winter December 1, and then March 1 for meteorological spring. So it's just kind of a way, a simplified way, as opposed to, is it, uh, is it June 21st or is it June 23rd or is it September 22nd? It's just a way, I think, to simplify things. Better for tax purposes, too. Just do it, <laughs> yes, there you go. Just that's do it right. quarterly, I guess. <laughs> quarterly year-round, yeah, that's right. Apart from the days now getting shorter, which is the biggest bummer part of this wonderful day, now I will yes. always, every single day, start to begin to recognize that the days are getting shorter and shorter. Um, anything do you notice changing, say, at the beginning of meteorological summer versus astronomical summer? Is there, does the summer really begin when it comes to weather on June 1st? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's, it, it changes from year to year. You know, I don't think there's any specific June 1st and everything changes into summer conditions or anything. I guess like what's, that. I think what, what date is closer to real summer, I guess, is what I'm asking. Because a lot of years it feels like, yeah. you know, it could be late April or May and you feel like it's technically still spring, but it feels a lot like summer. That has not been the case this year. No, that has not been the case this year. I mean, this year it's we had this kind of uh, ripping a heat surge in mid-April where we got up into the 90s for a couple of days mm -hmm. and then ever since then it's either been kind of seasonable temperature wise or actually cooler you know than average um, so I yeah yeah I think it changes from year to year well I mean it kind of it kind of falls in line with just what I've been noticing over the past five or six years which is that the winter pattern or winter type patterns have been or cold season patterns I guess have been setting up more have been setting up later and that's why this particular May and even into June has been that way. We've had these upper level low pressure systems kind of driving easterly wind, northerly wind and cooler temperatures and a little bit more cloudier and unsettled conditions into the region where normally around this time of year, um, you would typically or typical summer weather at this time of year, you would see more southerly flow, southwesterly. It gets warmer. It gets more humid. We've had a little bit of that, but not much. Is that why it's been so chilly and we've gotten those, I would say, freakish frosts through the spring? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's part of it is that is that, you know, whenever you just you have low pressure setting up kind of northeast of here over Atlantic Canada, it drives down from the north and so it cools down. So Green River Festival this weekend, and I hesitate to ask this because I am afraid and I feel like I should just present that fear um much in a dune style but like what are what Here are we is the mind killer for this weekend yeah yeah i mean not... uh yes I, I would rather not uh be the harbinger of this news but i think that what we're finally going to get actually is we're going to get uh southerly flow setting up it's going to bring a surge in dew points it's going to get muggier and we're going to have periods of showers and a few thunderstorms at times during the weekend and so if you're going, I mean, at least it's not going to be cold. It's going to be like mid 70s to low 80s. So it's going to be kind of early summery temperatures. But you're definitely going to have to you're going to have to be ready for some rain. I think it's not going to be raining all day long all the time, but there'll be periods of rain and it could downpour at times, too. I love to tell the story about the uh, 413's favorite armchair meteorologist, Dave Hayes, the weather not who we're talking to, who has 53,000 Facebook followers. But you saved the Green River Festival one year. Thunderstorms raging in the distance in Deerfield. You on a laptop with Greenfield Community College President Bob Pura and the curator of the festival, Jim Olson, saying these storms aren't going to hit us. Headliner goes off without a hitch when we were minutes away from sending everyone home, which won't happen this 
time because we're at the fairgrounds now and there's plenty of places to shelter. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Yeah, I remember that very specifically. I remember running into you and you're like, hey, do you want to talk to Bob Pura maybe about what's going on? I'm like, sure. And then I get into the uh, the control room and I'm like, what did I get myself into? Uh, yeah, but it, it ended up working out. Those storms fizzled out on the way east. And so luckily Dawes, that was the headliner. That's right. Um, yeah, they were able to go on and people weren't people were safe. So that felt good. And I hitchhiked home from a woman who had driven from upstate New York to see Dawes, and I was like, you wouldn't believe how close you were to not seeing them. <laughs> right. Dave, hey, the up. before we let you go, are, are we going to get into a warmer summer here right now? Is it going to start to turn warm at any point? Um, to be honest with you, the next couple of weeks, which is generally kind of as far as I look out, I don't really see it right now. I mean, you know, I think, it could, it'll, like I said, at times it'll be up into the 70s and low 80s, maybe even mid-80s. But it's we've got this unsettled period coming in because after this weekend, there's another one of these upper level low pressure systems coming east from the Great Lakes. So it's kind of more showery weather at times and thundery weather at times. Um, so I think we're going to have to wait till later in July to, to get some real summer. So don't solidify, solidify your Independence Day plans is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I mean, just, yeah, you got to pay attention to see what the weather's going to do because, yeah, it could uh, rain on your parade, as it were. Badoom, <laughs> and there was much sighing. <laughs> Dave Hayes, the Weathernut is community supported. Just like New England Public Media, you can check out all about Dave Hayes, the Weathernut at westernmasweather.com. Full disclosure, Khalees and I both support him. I have my Dave Hayes, the Weathernut mug. I haven't right gotten now. mine. Oh. <laughs> Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, we have an NPR favorite. We talk with comedians Nagin Farsad and Alonzo Bodden and author Roy Blunt Jr. All guests of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me who will be with us at the live taping at Tanglewood tomorrow night. And we'll be McGoverning with Jim McGovern. <laughs> We've got a McGovern chat. Got a question for the congressman? Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. Our director is Tony. Inscrutable facial expressions done. Our engineer is Betsy. Silence speaks for itself. Lankto. Our technical team is Bart. Gearing up for the Green River Festival Rankin. Kara. Extra invisible today. Foster. And punk rude boy Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Terry Janur, The Beatles, Dolly Parton, Tank Girl, Trixie and Katya, The Righteous Brothers, Eminem and Dido, Monty Python, and MGMT. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. See we- you tomorrow on the fabulous 413. We Are we? We will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>